one of the phrases I remember my grandma saying growing up was paint covers a multitude of sin. It's a joke, right? It, it's a it's a twist on a passage that we're going to be talking about today. But the point being is that, you know, when you look at a wall in your house and it's got crayon marks and scuff marks and ding marks and all of that going on, you know, you lived in the house. It just shows the wear and tear of life. It shows all the flaws. It shows all the, the times that your child failed, the times that you failed, the time that you spilt something on the wall, whatever it may be, that when you put that fresh coat of paint on it, it looks nice again, right? And it's not that it's not that the paint it's not that the, the flaws aren't there anymore or that they never happened. It's just that something else is more visible. Um, and we're going to get to that application here in a few minutes. But backing up for just a second, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, um, picking up where we left off last week. We were talking last week about how we need to live differently than the world and how they live based on their passions and their desires and and all of that. But verse 7, it says, the end of all things is at hand. I'm going to stop there for just a second. It doesn't take long for any Christian who who has any ounce of scriptural education to look at the world around us and, and wonder, how close are we to the end? So this is what's kind of odd here is, you know, time to God is different than time is to to man. But Peter here, he's saying the end of all things is at hand. So in the mind of the early Christian in the mind of the early church, the end was near. They they were expecting Jesus to return in their lifetime. Now we know that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and he didn't return in their lifetime. And here we are some 2000 years later still looking forward to Jesus returning. And so we look at the world and we start to think, well look at all this, there's wars, there's rumors of wars. We have these natural disasters are increasing and if you I just saw an article the other day that was talking about how our children are probably going to see exponentially more natural disasters than we did because of the, um, well, and they would say global warming, the climate change and all that. And, and that's a whole nother topic that I don't really want to get into. I think we absolutely should take care of our environment. And I think that we, but we also can't worship the environment. So when we look at this and we think the world, the end is at hand, the question is, are we living like the end is at hand? Um, and you've probably heard this before. I've heard it before, but our pastor just said this last week. He said, I don't know when the end is, but I do know that we're one day closer, and I'm paraphrasing, but we're one day closer than we were yesterday. So whenever Jesus is going to return, we're one day closer than we were yesterday. And you should just let that sink in for just a moment. Because Peter's getting ready to tell us how we should live in light of the end being at hand. It says here, therefore, being self-controlled. Now, this is the exact opposite of what was being talked about just a few verses earlier when it says that they living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, parties, and lawless idolatry. It says be self-controlled and sober-minded. So self-controlled. This concept is very, very important. It's the idea that you can control it, right? I mean, it's a self-explanation. It's the idea that you one can control their self, right? You can control oneself. One of the things when I was flying in college, um, you know, flying is, it, it's a lot of fun, but it's, it's hard. I mean, there's difficulties to it. But one of the things that one of my instructors, he would say all the time, and I thought it was a great phrase, and I've heard variations of this phrase, but I'd be battling uh, the plane and I'd be battling the wind and the turbulence and I would just be trying to 
do the maneuvers that I needed to do, but just seemed like I was having a hard time keeping it where I needed, keeping all of my, uh, all of my readouts where they need to be, keeping my altitude where it needed to be and my attitude where it needed to be. And he would say, are you flying the plane or is the plane flying you? In other words, are you allowing, are you just going with what the plane's wanting to do? Just barely holding on, just reacting, or are you actually in control of the plane? I just heard on the radio today somebody talking about a phrase uh, from when they were a child that their their dad liked to say, and that was, are you letting the situation control you or are you controlling the situation? The idea here is that we can control our passions. It's not that we're not going to be passionate people, but that we are able to control those passions and that we don't let them control us, that we control our desires that we control our emotions, we control our mental state. Not, and so what that looks like is that you don't make decisions. You don't, you don't take action based on what you feel, but on what you know. I'm not discounting feelings by any means. I think emotion has a powerful part in our human interaction and in our interaction with God. I think emotion is important. I think God gives us emotion uh, for a reason. But we have to be able to have control over that. The second thing he says here is to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Sober-minded, that's the idea of, of being serious, of being somber, right? It's the opposite of being drunk. When you're drunk and you drink alcohol, you begin to lose control of your faculties. You, you become ambivalent. You don't care anymore. You don't see danger the same way. You don't take things seriously. It's not to say we can't ever have fun. I absolutely believe that God has a sense of humor. Uh, I mean, Proverbs says that laughter does good like a medicine. I think that having fun and, and enjoying life, I mean, there's, there's evidence throughout Scripture that we're supposed to enjoy life, that we're supposed to enjoy it. But the idea is that we take life seriously. We don't just take it flippantly. And when things happen, we take those things seriously. When, when we have to make decisions, we make those decisions sober-minded so, so that we are in line with what Christ wants us to be. It's the opposite of being drunk, right? It's the opposite of, being, uh, of the drinking parties and the lawlessness that they're talking about. It's the idea of taking things seriously. It says, so that for the sake of your prayers. When you're being controlled by your passions and when you're being controlled by your desires and when you're being controlled by your sin, okay, uh, your prayers are hindered because you are not allowing yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. There's no self-control. There's no sober-mindedness. And so for the sake of your prayers, so that God will hear your prayers, that he will listen to you, you have to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Well, he says in verse 8, he says, above all. Now, if he says above all, he's been listing all this stuff. He's been talking about all this stuff. He says, above all, you better take note. So what is above all? What is the most important thing Peter wants to say to us right now? It says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now you know where I'm going with the paint thing. You see, love, this idea of love, it's the agape love. It's an unconditional love. We love each other in spite of our failings. We love each other in spite of our sin. We love each other in spite of how we've wronged each other. We love each other in spite of all those things. I love my children even when they make me angry. <laughs> well, and I would argue they don't make me angry. They just reveal anger in my heart. 
I love my children even when they do wrong. I love my children even when they do these things because they're my children. But we're supposed to love each other earnestly. All right, that uh, earnestly, that's the idea of, of passionately, of putting each other's uh, wants and needs above our own, thinking about others before yourself. And we are all guilty of failing at this. All right, that's the idea of agape love. It's choosing, it's choosing to put somebody else's wants, desires, and needs above your own. So we're supposed to love each other earnestly because love covers a multitude of sin. And just like the paint example I gave you a little bit ago, when my grandma said that paint covers a multitude of sin on a wall, right? It's not that the the smudges, it's not that the the marks and the the crayon marks and the fingerprints and, and the dirt and the food that got stuck there. It's not that those never happened. It's just that the paint shows more, right? It's covering it. That love, that idea of love, it covers a multitude of sin. God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. And his blood covers all of our sin. It pays the, the, the price for all of our sin. We are to love one each other, one another. Even when we fail, even when somebody wrongs you, you're to love them, especially within the church, right? That's, that's what Jesus said, that they will know us by the love that we have for one another. So how much do we love one another? It says in verse nine, to show hospitality to one another. Well, that sounds great. I have somebody over my house and eat some dinner, give somebody a ride to my car, wherever they need to go. So we show some hospitality. It says do it without grumbling. I, I find it funny. Um, I know this sounds a little strange, but I find it funny. But it's, it's intentional that he says show hospitality without grumbling. He's pairing those two together for a reason. And I think it's because there's often times where we will show hospitality, but we do it out of a sense of obligation rather than a sense of love. And so we're supposed to do it without grumbling. And when you when you show hospitality out of a sense of obligation, you end up complaining about it. I mean, think about it in your own life. That, well, we got to have so-and-so over for dinner. Or so-and-so needs a ride in the car, so I guess I'll show some hospitality and give them a ride in my car. But really, this is taking me way out of my way, and it's very annoying, and it's kind of cutting into all my plans for my day. That's not really truly hospitality. That's just doing something out of obligation. There's no love there. But we're supposed to show hospitality to one another, love towards one another. The question is, are we doing that in our churches? Are we doing that in our own lives? It says, verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As each has received a gift. So there's other passages in scripture that talk about the spiritual giftedness of the believer. And you'll find lots of books written on it. You'll find lots of articles written on it. You'll find spiritual gift surveys that help you figure out what your spiritual gift is. Um, there's lots of different things out there. And, um, and I'm not going to get into all of that. I'm not going to get into a, an extensive list of spiritual gifts. For one thing, I haven't found two lists that agree with each other. But the primary point is that God has given each believer a spiritual gift that we are to use for the benefit of other people. We do it in love. 
and he lists here, he says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. So if you're, example, podcast, I'm speaking, right? So when I'm speaking, I should be speaking truth of God's word. It shouldn't be about lifting up Zach. It shouldn't be about making a big name for Zach. It should be about it should be about celebrating the word of God and helping other people to understand the word of God. He also says, the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Service is difficult. Service is hard. If you're somebody who's always helping with everything, right? It's not always easy. And sometimes we need that, that extra strength. But the point is, is that we're supposed to we're supposed to be stewards of God's varied grace. The whole purpose of giving individual believers different gifts and different varying levels of gifts is so that we need each other. There are things that I am not good at. I know that's hard to believe if you know me, but but the truth is there's things that I'm not good at. And it's not just like I'm not good at fixing a car. Um, that's not what I mean. I mean like there are actual spiritual giftedness that I am not good at. And I know what my strengths are and I know what my weaknesses are and what I need in my life. And I don't mean, I don't mean that as a sense of I'm trying to be needy. I mean, that is, this is how God created us to be. I need people who have complementary gifts to mine to help me in my areas of weakness, just like you need the same thing. And just like my giftedness is going to help somebody else in an area of their weakness. And we come alongside each other and we work together. God designed it that way. He designed it so that we would need relationship and community with each other. That's why it's so important to be part of a local church, a local body of believers where you can get involved so that you can, one, use your giftedness to help other people, and two, also be fed by the giftedness of others. That's how we grow. We grow together. Not that we're all in the same place, but that we're all moving forward together. But it says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The purpose of all of it, the purpose of everything that we do in our life is to glorify God. The purpose of our church is to glorify God. The purpose of creation is to glorify God. That's why when... when um, the Israelites were singing uh, Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus as he walked and they were laying out the palm branches, but they told them uh, to be quiet. He said, if they be quiet, the rocks will cry out because we were created to worship God. That's our purpose. Nothing else matters beyond that. And how do we worship God? Well, Jesus says it very clearly by giving us the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to glorify God, you do those two things. All the other law hangs on those two items. If you are fulfilling those two laws to perfection, you will be fulfilling every other law in Scripture. Because you will be thinking about God and you will be thinking about others first. The our purpose is to glorify God. We we like to in our in our society we like to talk about purpose. What's my purpose in life? Because we want meaning. We want to matter. Uh, and it's hard to feel like you matter in a world of seven billion people that you're only going to live for about eighty years ish. And when you die, you'll be lucky if your great grandchildren remember your name. And if you're one of the really lucky ones, you'll die and your name will go into a history book, but you won't be alive to know about it. So who really cares? 
it's hard to find purpose. It's hard to find matter, but we want that, right? You can see that in our society. But our ultimate purpose is to glorify God. And in that purpose, in fulfilling that purpose, you will find fulfillment. That is when you will feel the most fulfilled is when you are glorifying God with everything that you say and everything that you do. The other side of that is you look at a cell phone, for example. A cell phone has many uses, and nowadays it has so many uses. I mean, it's about done away with the need for a computer. You, you, can, you can talk to somebody, you can text somebody, you can get on your social media accounts, you can, you can check your bank accounts, you can transfer money, you can pay for things with your cell phone, you can find how to get somewhere using the GPS on your cell phone. There's an app for everything. But the primary purpose of a cell phone is communication. And while it may be somewhat useful, it may be somewhat useful to have uh, a device to play games on. If your cell phone quits making phone calls, if it quits text messaging, if it quits using Facebook Messenger or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever other platform you're using, if it ceases to communicate, you will find a new cell phone and you will throw your old cell phone away because it is worthless. So how much more as as Christians, as believers, or as human beings, we're supposed to glorify God. That is our primary purpose in life, is to glorify God. And yet, the vast majority of people do not fulfill that purpose. However, we have a loving and gracious God who doesn't just throw us away. He gives us time and opportunity after opportunity to repent and to turn to Him and to fulfill what our purpose is, to glorify God. See, we have a purpose. That purpose is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. So my question for you is this. Are you loving God? Are you loving others? Are you showing hospitality? Are you utilizing your gift for the sake of other people? Are you being sober-minded and self-controlled, keeping in mind that the end is at hand? That's why we have to take things so seriously. That's why it's important for us to be self-controlled. That's why it's important for us to be sober-minded and to love one another because the end is at hand. When will that end be? I have no idea, but we are one day closer than we were yesterday. So are you loving God and are you loving others? Mm -hmm.